I'm going to be reading from Galatians 3, verse 26 to 4, verse 11. If you want to follow along, it is printed in your bulletin. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as there is an heir, as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, You are slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. This is God's word. Well, again, good morning, everybody. My name is um, Kyle Hackman. I am a pastor. For the past um, almost seven years, I've worked at Grace Toronto Church in downtown Toronto, and since January 1st, I've been transitioning to plant a church in the east end of Toronto. I'll just say briefly, the east end of the city, when you cross over the DVP, uh, consists of somewhere around a quarter of a million people, and um, as of now, all the churches that are worshipping in that area were started um, before 1940. And yet, uh, in the past 10 years, there's been over 100,000 homes that have exchanged hands, and so it's an area of rapid change, I think a little bit similar to what's being experienced in some neighborhoods around here. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be uh, starting a new church, and the church plant is off to a fun and great start. I've gotten to know your Pastor Paul through being in the church planning gatherings together. Unfortunately, we sit and talk and uh, interrupt the group constantly because he and I are both about equally extroverted and we both talk over one another about, uh, about as much. So we have no choice but to be friends because no one else likes us. <laughs> um, I, have, I have four daughters and sadly they couldn't be here. Uh, my wife and our four children couldn't be here because one of my children is sick, but uh, I'm happy to be here and to be looking at such an important passage. And usually before you, when you're a guest preacher, you come and you have like your best sermon that you pull out of your back pocket and you woo and wah everybody and then you leave and they don't know that you don't preach like that every week. And Paul's smarter than most uh, pastors and he didn't allow that to happen. He uh, told me I had to continue your Galatians series and so I'm happy to do that with you though. But let's pray before we look at this passage and uh, then we will we'll get underway. Let's pray though. Our Heavenly Father... Um, We come to something that's in some ways quite peculiar, a letter written some 2,000 years ago about a a church conflict that might not seem very relevant today, and uh, someone that 
most of us don't even really know this strange man standing in front of everyone and talking about this passage. Father, we come before you and put our hands, put ourselves in your hands and ask that you would teach us through your word. That those of us who are anxious and doubting, those of us who are fearful, those of us who are filled with joy, all the, the mess of, of people that we are, that you would speak clearly to us, and that we would know that you are our Father and that in Jesus Christ you have rescued us, you have brought us near, and you are fixing all things. Please, by your Spirit, assist us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by giving you a, a list of characters, and as you listen to these characters, I want you to think about what they all have in common, okay? So here are these characters. Frodo Baggins, Harry Potter, Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz, Tom Sawyer, Oliver Twist, Cinderella, David Copperfield, Jane Eyre, Huckleberry Finn, Pip from The Great Expectations, Anne Shirley from Anna Green Gables, Batman, Robin, James Bond, Mowgli from The Jungle Book, Paddington Bear, Snow White, Spider-Man, Superman, Tarzan, and Wolverine. What do all these characters have in common? Any of the young children know? <laughs> do you know? Yeah, I don't know if anyone knows, but at least according to Wikipedia, I can't verify all these independently, uh, but according to Wikipedia, all these characters are orphans. All of them are orphans. And I want to begin this morning by asking this question, why are there so many orphans in the great stories of our culture? What is it about being an orphan that creates a universal appeal and pulls us into to a narrative? Why are orphans the perfect protagonists to capture mass markets of viewers and consumers? Why is that? You see, I, I think we as human beings walk around with deep questions and even if you grew up with the best of family, if you have virtually no complaints about the family you grew up in, I think we all wonder from time to time in our life, does anyone desire me? You know, do I really belong and do I have any real purpose? These are sort of questions that I think, again, whether you grew up in a wonderful family or you grew up as an orphan, they're questions that plague us as we enter into new stages of life. The teenage years, they're just, they overwhelm us. And as we move into the, the university and professional years, these are questions that uh, haunt us. Do I fit in? Do they actually want me at this company? I do, as, as marriage works out, you constantly hear this. Wives wondering, does my husband want me? Husbands wondering, does my wife like me? Does she want me? And I believe it's these deep questions that sit inside of us that we wrestle with constantly that make us so attractive to sit down in literature and film and to think about characters that are orphans. And really, when we think about what the Bible is up to, the Bible as a whole is really a story about children who, under their own rebellion, under their own volition, have chosen the state of orphanage, uh, chosen to flock towards orphanages as opposed to being in a house and playing under the house rules. They've chosen to reject the, the wise care of their father and live in a world estranged from the one who made them. And the whole story of the Bible is, is uh, sort of this picture of the, the heavenly father, the creator, coming down and trying to fix this state of estrangement. And really the best picture that the Bible has to grip us, just like modern uh, film, and one of the best metaphors that Paul has at his disposal as he turns to this chapter in Galatians is the metaphor of adoption. And so that's a bit of what we're going to look at this morning and talk about how adoption fits into what Paul is trying to do with this community 
of people that he's writing to in the, city of, in the region of Galatia. And I want to divide out the sermon uh, in three parts. And I want to ask first, how do we experience this uh, gospel adoption? Second, what does it mean to be adopted? And I want to end our time briefly by thinking about what temptations stand before us as adopted children. So first, let's ask, how are we uh, going to experience this gospel adoption? How do we experience being adopted? And uh, your pastor Paul, which makes it confusing when you're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul, but your pastor Paul has given me not only a passage in Galatians, but a passage right in the middle of Galatians, right in the middle of a very complex argument and battle that the Apostle Paul is having and dealing with with this local community. And really to understand um, how it is that we are adopted, we need to understand a little bit of the background of this battle. So let me bring you up to speed. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that uh, he played a part in them hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, hearing that in Jesus Christ the state of alienation can be fixed and we can have a, a relationship with our Heavenly Father because Jesus Christ came to this world He was the Son of God. He came to this world, took on a real human body, gave of his life for us so that we uh, might have our sins forgiven and have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul has been uh, telling, has, has been notified that this group of people who initially bought into this message has now been, uh, be, they're being troubled by a group of teachers coming from neighboring regions called the Judaizers who are doing their best to tell these people, you know, that this whole story of Jesus is good. But God had been up to something prior to Jesus. He had made promises in Abraham and given the law through Moses. And really, if you want to sort of stay in the family that God has created, if you really want to be mature and be part of the people of God, well, you've got to start going back to some of these rituals that were important in the Old Testament. And you really got to understand this, uh, what it meant to be Jewish, to really uh, thrive in this uh, relationship with Jesus. This is sort of, an, in a nutshell, what's been happening. There's some people who've come to this church in Galatia and said, if you really want to continue to participate in being a Christian, you have to become Jewish in some senses. And this, Paul's argument that has been going on throughout this whole letter, and again, if you're just visiting, I hope, I hope this is helpful for you, but his argument has been that God, out of his grace, made himself known to a man who had no religious, real religious background that would, would make him a good candidate to make himself known. God, in his grace, made himself known to a man named Abraham, and he made promises that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Paul has been making this argument that after this promise came to Abraham, Abraham birthed this nation of Israel, then the law came. But the promise, is the promise that God gave to Abraham, that in him God would bless all the world, this descendant of Abraham, this seed of Abraham. And what Paul is telling this group of people is that you're getting in on these blessings of Abraham by virtue of your faith and trust in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But when this group came and disturbed you and told you that to be true sons of God, you need to learn to become Jewish, Paul is saying that they, they, this group of people does not understand the actual nature of the promise that had come back in the time of Abraham. Again, this might be complex and confusing. I hope I'm making sense to you. Uh, Paul, is, Paul is telling uh, these group of people that the law was given as a guardian because Israel, this nation that God had chosen and had made himself known to, Abraham's descendants, he, they were not mature enough to handle the full weight of the inheritance that belonged to them as God's son. And in the same way, a 13-year-old whose father leaves to him a great uh, treasure of inheritance, this stuff gets held in a trust. It gets, uh, he's not allowed to uh, dig into it until he gets to a certain level of maturity. So also, this is what God was doing with Israel. 
They weren't, they weren't mature enough to handle all the blessings. And so the law came along as a guardian, as a manager, to mature them and to grow them up so that at the proper time they could receive all the estate and learn to use it wisely. But they weren't there yet at the time, and so this is why God gave them the law. And Paul is telling these people, if you go back and try to, uh, again, sit under the manager or try to, try to pretend like your inheritance is kept in trust, this is not uh, only just one option about how to mature. This is actually a step backwards. This is going to be counterproductive for your growth. And what Paul says is that you have been adopted as sons, especially you who are not Jewish. You have, have received the full rights of this family inheritance, not by virtue of growing up properly under the manager and being maturing, uh, maturing to the right time. You have been adopted. And the way you were adopted was by putting your allegiance and your trust, your faith, in Jesus Christ. You can see this in verse 26. And Paul immediately links this, this belief and trust in Jesus. Now all the promises, that massive pot of inheritance that belonged to Abraham, to sort of speak metaphorically, it now belongs to you. Even though you were not part of the family, you have been brought in by your allegiance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul continues that when you were baptized, again, he ties faith with this, this ritual way that we can perform this faith. As you were baptized in Jesus Christ, you are so united to Jesus Christ that it doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter that you were not part of the group of people who were being matured to the right time to receive Christ. In Jesus Christ, when you put your faith in him, it doesn't matter if you were the rankest pagan. It doesn't matter if you were the most self-righteous Jewish person. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, slave, free, liberal, conservative. These things get eradicated when you're united to Jesus Christ. They don't affect your standing as it relates to having all the promises, all the inheritance that are yours. I'll use this as an illustration. Um, I was quite embarrassed as I came down here. My, one of my children got sick, and my wife, unfortunately, has to go to this clinic to get it checked out. And we own a van, as most uh, families of four do. And the plan was to load everyone up in the van and come down. But when my wife needed to take the child to the hospital, she has to take all four kids. And um, it, it made sense that she was going to take the van, which means I need to borrow a neighbor's car, which is no big deal because we live in a part of the city where people, some people just have too much money. They don't know what to do with it. So they like to waste it and buy a second car that sits in their garage all the time. And so one of our neighbors has this arrangement. And he has made very clear that we can drive this car whenever. And uh, so it's a Lexus, though. And so here I am coming down to preach at your church. And uh, I was actually nervous about how I was going to park and where I could park. And maybe I could park down the street and walk in. Because I was very insecure to say, here I am, this church planner, you know, running around trying to raise money, uh, trying to start this new church. And uh, yeah, you know, don't look at me. My heated seats made my, my tush a little warm on the way here. Uh, <laughs> You know, don't, don't mind me as I come out of this sweet Lexus SUV. Um, you know, what Paul is saying is that in Jesus, there isn't a Lexus driver and a bus driver. You know, right now you sit in a row next to people who might be from very radically different socioeconomic levels, and that makes no difference to your, to your right to this inheritance. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Um, one of the people who is part of this church plant works at Google. And I'm quite fascinated with the corporate structure of Google and how, they, uh, how the systems work at Google. And uh, I often was looking for an invite to sneak into Google and see what it's like sort of behind the veil. And when I finally worked up the courage to ask, you know, could I visit you at work sometime? This person said, yeah, of course. Just come in and check into this computer and here, I'll give you a, a, a PIN number and then it will print out a badge and you'll be welcome to come in and you can find me at my desk. And I thought, oh, 
this is going to be pretty cool. And so, uh, sure enough, I went to, to the center down in Toronto and did all the stuff and got my badge printed out and put it on with pride, smile ear to ear, acting as though I actually belonged in this office, that I was part of sort of the world's elites that understand uh, how, to, how to create complex things that will change the world. Uh, and as I wore this badge, it said I was a guest of this, this person at my church, um, I walked through those doors and we went to lunch. And I don't know if you guys have heard rumors about the lunches that they have at Google, but they're no joke. It's not a cafeteria. There was like leg of lamb being shaved onto your plate, uh, unbelievable amounts of vegetables that just looked absolutely stunning, all right there. And the crazy part was, these people were serving me as though I deserved to have uh, this kind of royal treatment. And not only that, as we left and went back to their desk, we walked past an espresso machine and the guy said, would you like some coffee? And I thought, well, as a matter of fact, I would like some coffee. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Uh, not only that, though, as we continued to move on, we were informed that there was a discussion going on uh, later that afternoon, and I was invited to go to this discussion about the future of a certain part of the technological industry. Um, but something happened uh, as I was there. I started to believe that I deserved to be there in one sense. Uh, I told my friend at one point, you know what, I'm going to go grab another coffee. That was really good. And I walked back and sort of said, <laughs> by virtue of my badge, please, will you serve me another cup of coffee? Uh, this is, in a sense, what, a big picture of what Paul's trying to say happens to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and when we're united to him in baptism. That that name tag that we didn't really earn that uh, wasn't really because of my intellectual prowess, um, that name tag that allowed me to walk around Google and pretend like I'm an employee, that in Christ, because of his status, we can get a name tag. But it's even greater than that, Paul's saying, because it's not just that this is a name tag that one day I had to give and, and throw away, though I was wondering if I could keep it in my pocket and come back some other time and do the whole thing over again. Um, you know, this isn't a name tag that has to take, we have to take off at some point. Our baptisms stay with us. They stay with us throughout the course of our entire lives. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ puts us in a place where we have all the access to what rightfully belongs to Christ. What Paul is saying is this, that God's Son came into the world. Jesus Christ is, was the Son of God. He was not an adopted Son. He was the true Son of God, the only one who could rightly say that He was a true Son. He came into our world, took on human flesh, became a human like us, and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and on the last day, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And the Father takes that spirit of Jesus that has been given to the hands of the Father, and he's now sending that spirit back down into this world so that we might be united to this Jesus Christ, and we might be able to say, Dearest Father, and the very breath of Jesus might animate us, even in seasons of suffering, to know that we are adopted children of God. We belong in the family. We belong uh, to be sitting next to one another and to be sitting next to Jesus Christ as part of the sons of God. We belong. We have the spirit in us telling us we are adopted when we believe and when this belief is, is expressed sort of in, in baptism, we are united to Jesus Christ. Jesus was the true son and he's now sent his spirit. Uh, the father has sent the spirit to make more true sons. So this is what Paul is trying to say. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and Paul doesn't see any reason to say it's either this or baptism. He wants to say when these things collide, right? When you've, been, when you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and this thing ceremonially works itself out in baptism, as these things happen, you are in Christ. You are Abraham's child, not because of anything you did. Not because you, you uh, had some intellectual formula that, that allowed your belief to somehow push God into a corner and he has to accept you as a son. Oh no. 
all because of the work of Jesus, the rightful son, you now are, are rightfully adopted into this family. And you put on the family badge in, in your baptism. This is yours. You are a son. You are a daughter. Now, I'll just say very briefly, it might sound like Paul's being very gender exclusive, and even the most contemporary Bible translations will still say adopted as sons. And I'll just say briefly, this is because in the culture, women were not entitled to own property. And there was no way for an adopted daughter to inherit property. They were treated differently. And Paul's saying something absolutely radical, something that would have upset the times. He's saying that you who are not eligible for proper adoption, that in Jesus Christ, you are adopted as a son, that there's neither male nor female anymore in that sense. You're standing before the Father is because of what Jesus has done. So this is how we experience adoption, and I hope you've experienced this. But now let's look at um, what it means to be adopted. And really, Paul picks this part of the argument up in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Paul, again, is continuing this argument, uh, trying to encourage these, these Christians, predominantly Gentile Christians, um, that things like kosher laws and circumcision and the elements of the laws that was set in place to keep them separated from the rest of the world. Paul's saying that if you go back to that, you are taking a step back in what God is up to. Uh, the law came again because the Jewish people were, they were minors. They weren't mature enough to handle the fullness of the promise that God had given to Abraham. And so the law came, but they've come to the age of maturity where the inheritance is now here. Why in the world would you revert back to that age of submitting to these managers? And Paul is actually going quite extreme. If you're you know, sort of theologically keen, it might be good to slow down and reread these, what he's saying this afternoon. But he's actually saying to treat the law as though it was that important, to treat the manager as though the manager was so wonderful and so set apart, in many ways would be comparable to the Gentiles going back to their false religions that they were previously part of. To go back under the law is to take such a far step back, it's to do something to the law that it was never meant to be. Uh, this, is, this is not what you should be doing. The time has come. God has sent Jesus to redeem us from the law so that, and to, to allow the fullness of the promise to be poured out upon us so that even the Gentiles can receive adoption as sons. This is what verse 5 is all about. This, this inheritance wasn't fully avail available in times past, but it is available now, and now adoption can come through the seed of Abraham, through Jesus. But the sons, again, want, are tempted to turn to these old managers. They're tempted to be like teenagers that are contemplating going back to wearing diapers. Paul just does not want this to take place. This is a step backwards. And he, he wants uh, these, especially these Gentile Christians, to know that they have something in their adoption. They have something important. Now, Paul um, speaks of adoption a couple of times in his letters, but he only speaks of it when he's writing to um, churches that are in sort of Roman-occupied territories. And adoption was a, in a very, very important practice in Rome, but it was also extremely rare. Very often, the way adoption worked was that if an uh, older man who maybe only had daughters like me, uh, but in a much different world. Uh, but he, he didn't have any heir to pass on his inheritance legally to. He didn't have any male heir behind him. Sometimes what would happen was an older man would adopt one of his servants. And this servant would then uh, take on the estate and all the rights and privileges of a son all of a sudden would be transferred on this servant. And this servant would be considered the son of the one who owns the estate. 
I mean, this is, this is the sort of picture that was something that would happen from time to time. And Nero was actually adopted. There's other, other individuals in the Roman Empire line that were adopted. Uh, but Paul is, is using this picture, this gripping picture, because he wants everyone in this church to see that this is how they are receiving the inheritance that belonged to Abraham. They're being adopted in because of the work of Jesus, the true son. Now, what does it mean to be adopted? I, I'd hope that some of you here have, have experienced adoption, I assume. Some of you probably have adopted, and I assume some of you are thinking about adopting. Um, it's been a part of the Christian practice from very early on. And, but what, is it, what does it actually mean to be adopted? Well, I'm going to list a couple of, of privileges that come to the person who's adopted that I, that I hope will be helpful for you as you think about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, the first is that it, when we are adopted, it means we are given new parents. We are given a new father. We're given a new mother. There's a, a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. He's down in the States, or I think he's might, he might be back in Scotland now. Uh, but he says this, If you want to know if you really understand Christianity, ask yourself how much you make of the thought of the creator of the universe, the king most, power, most, most powerful, most beautiful, most worthy of all respect and honor, uh, more than could possibly be given to him, is now your dearest father. I wonder how much you make of that thought. This is part of what it means to be adopted. It means you now know the creator of this world as your dearest father, your Abba father. There's no one else who's allowed to wake up the king in the middle of the night except for the sons. Only the children are allowed to run in and say, Daddy, help. And I wonder if you know of this adoption, the freedom to call out to the heavenly father. But it's not just that you're given a new father, you're also given a new family. In adoption, uh, you don't just receive a new father, uh, sort of a new parents, you also receive new sisters and new brothers. And in this family, all of us, our status is absolutely equal, equal because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is part of what it means to be uh, in Jesus Christ, that now this group of people, and in a, a mysterious way also, all the other churches in this region, all the other churches in the world, we are now able to address one another as sisters and brothers. And there's no more second-class citizens. And there's not one person who deserves to be in this family more than the other person. When it comes down to it, all of us are here because of what, a, what Christ has done for us. And in the same way, we will put up with a lot of garbage from our biological, uh, or from our, from our uh, nuclear family. So also, we should expect that part of what it means to be sisters and brothers together is that people are going to put up with our garbage, and we're going to put up with other people's garbage. And we're going to live our lives in such a way that we do what is right for others as well and sacrifice. You're given a new father in adoption. You're given a new family. But you're also given um, a new special sibling. Let me, let me illustrate uh, this with a story that was reported to me as true. It's maybe one of the most powerful stories I've heard in a while. Uh, there was a family who uh, tried and tried and tried to have children and unfortunately were unable to because of infertility. And ultimately, they realized there was going to be no possibility of them having a child. And an opportunity for adoption came up. And this adoption was unique. They were connected with a five-year-old boy in the Ukraine who has been left in an orphanage. And let's call this boy Joshua. And they were beyond excited. They had prayed and prayed and wanted a child for so long. And they sort of, at the time when they realized they would never be able to have their own children, to be set up with this adoption was a source of great comfort for them. And they were so excited, they began to pack their bags to travel to the Ukraine to meet this boy and to finalize the adoption. And they bought all kinds of sweet toys for the boy and all kinds of candies to bring over uh, to the Ukraine to interact with this child. 
And they got on a plane, and they flew over to the Ukraine and arrived at the orphanage. And upon arriving at the orphanage, again, as the story is reported to me, they were overwhelmed to just see bed upon bed, everywhere that I could see, children that uh, did not have parents, children sleeping right next to one another. And they eventually, uh, after meeting the director of the orphanage, they were eventually introduced to Joshua, and they were escorted to a private room. And in the private room, they opened their suitcase and showed Joshua these toys, all the toys that they had brought over. And they also showed him some of the candy. And you can imagine, this boy had never owned a toy, and yet now all of a sudden, all these beautiful and wonderful toys belonged to him by, by virtue of this adoption. And this boy who had eaten a sort of bare minimum meal his whole life, all of a sudden was exposed to sweets and to candy. And there was an immediate connection, and the family felt like this was a perfect match. And they, they found themselves rejoicing and thanking God for what he had done and connecting them with this boy. And the day couldn't have gone better. They spent time with Joshua. They ended up spending, uh, sleeping at a nearby hotel, came back, spent some more time with Joshua, and the time came to sort of sign the paperwork and for them to take Joshua to their home and uh, to, to call them his to call him their son. And all of a sudden, uh, as the director of the orphanage explained to Joshua what was about to be finalized on that day, the little boy took off running. He took off running throughout the orphanage and hid somewhere, and they couldn't seem to find him. The adopted parents uh, had received some counseling beforehand and were told that this is something that does happen every now and then uh, when this stuff happens. This is traumatic and that you should expect that. And so they had expected that it would be hard for this child, but they searched and searched, and they could not find this boy. They looked all over and could not find him. Eventually, they found him hiding uh, in a particular room in a corner that they had missed on first glance. And after finding him, they saw that he was uh, standing there holding the hand of another boy. And these two parents, as they walked through the door and caught eye, met eyes with Joshua, they, were, they found this beautiful and touching. They thought, how hard. This boy has been in an orphanage with this other boy, and he's going to really miss his friends. What a tragedy. But we had expected this. How painful would this be? And they appealed to Joshua. They appealed to him and said, it's time for us to go. You are part of our family now. We are going to raise you somewhere else where you have better opportunities. And Joshua, who didn't fully understand their language, looked at them with this determined look on their face, and it was obvious that he was not going anywhere. He gripped the hand of the boy harder. And they appealed to Joshua and appealed to Joshua, and he just would not give in. And then, after a while, the director of the orphanage came in and was able to speak to Joshua without a language barrier. And he did his best to step in and separate these two boys. And Joshua wouldn't have it. He wrapped his arms around this other little boy, and they stayed down together. They dropped down on the ground together. And he said, I am not leaving without my brother. And as the story was reported to me, Joshua didn't leave without his brother. His family ended up working out the details and was able to adopt the second son as well. What am I trying to say? If you want to understand what adoption is, this is what it looks like, because this is what Jesus has done for you. This is what he's done for me. He's come to earth, and he's taken on our flesh. He's fully understood what it means to be human. He's been like us in every way. And as he goes to receive his inheritance that is rightfully his, he wraps his arms around you in love. He wraps his arms around me in love. And he says, I'm not going without my sister. I'm not going without my brother. And he doesn't have to convince his heavenly father. 
For this has been the Father's plan from the beginning, that you and I and all who would look in faith and trust in Jesus, to Jesus Christ, we could all be counted as rightful heirs, true sons of God, and right and restored fellowship with our Heavenly Father by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is doing in adoption. This is what he's doing for you. This is what he's doing for me. And this is what Paul is so animated by. This is what Paul is so motivated by. And he's saying, how in the world could you go back to that status of trying to have a relationship with God through the mediator. My goodness, you have been adopted. You have a right standing before the heavenly Father. You have access to the place where life unending is found. Love, joy, pleasure, peace, happiness, unending will be there because of the work of Jesus Christ. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. And because of what Jesus has done, you can with confidence wear your name badge and be in the presence of God. But I'll wrap this up quickly. I wasn't expecting to cry. I lost an hour of sleep last night. Maybe I'm more emotional. I don't cry very often. Um, what temptations face any child that's being adopted? Again, I, I haven't adopted any children. Um, but this week I was at a meeting and I was interacting with someone who has adopted many older children. And it seems that a very common thread of what happens when someone is adopted is they have to push the boundaries of love. They've, they have such a habit and such an experience of being rejected and being on their own that this is what feels most normal. This is what, feels most, uh, what they feel most comfortable in. And so they have to constantly push and push the boundaries. And in verses 8 through 10, Paul is, is trying to encourage these Gentile Christians in Galatia, don't push the boundaries. I know you feel more comfortable relating with distance. Uh, I know you feel more comfortable trying to figure out how to keep God at arm's length and keep, be independent and manage your own sort of relationship. Don't push the boundaries. Do not push the boundaries. Receive God's love and this adoption through Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, don't turn back to your old ways. Don't try to flee back to the orphanage. Why would you do that? That was not the life that was good for you. That was not the life that you wanted. Rest in, embrace, uh, be caught up in the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Remember, adopted children don't always feel an immediate connection to the new family. This is an identity that takes time. But my goodness, never forget what slavery felt like. And never, forget, never forget what it felt like to be under the tutor or the manager. All the rights and privileges of being a son are now yours. Don't turn back. This is Paul's sort of argument in this passage. Now I'll say in conclusion, I hope, I've done my best to make the case that I hope you see why our culture is fascinated with orphans, whether it's Superman or Spider-Man or Batman or Tarzan. Uh, I hope you understand that all of us are longing for something that feels greater than or, or more deep than, than home. We're longing for a true purpose. We're craving a sense that we belong somewhere, that we are wanted and what the story of the gospel teaches us is that in Jesus Christ, you're wanted more than you can imagine. You're wanted more than you would allow yourself to ever believe. That God loves you and he looks upon you and he wants you to be near to him. He wants you to be in his family and in Jesus Christ, he has, he has found a way. And through Jesus Christ, you can have confidence. So today, if you feel the story pulling at your heart, I would challenge you to move closer to Jesus Christ by expressing clear faith and trust in him. By saying, I trust that I am loved by God in Jesus and have access to the creator of this world through the work of Jesus. And I would challenge you to cry out to your father and ask him that he would give you more freedom to, to know this love. 
that you would have more confidence uh, in being in this family and that you'd find more joy in knowing what it means to follow. And if you're here and you're not in this place where you've trusted, if you've never crossed that line of faith, I would challenge you to do it. And if you've never been baptized, also would you consider doing this? This is an important part of the way that we, we join in and experience what it means to be part of this family. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I give you thanks for this passage and for the ways in which the Apostle Paul, uh, rather than just calling the Galatians stupid, which in some ways he has its other turns in this letter, uses this beautiful picture of adoption as a means by which we can understand what it means to be your people. And we do pray now that you would, by your Spirit, pour your Spirit deeper in us, that the Spirit of your Son would allow us to cry out, uh, most, most dearest Father, uh, that we would be able, and from our inward being, to know you as our Father, that we would leave this place looking at the skies and looking at the trees and looking at the world around us, knowing that the one who made all these things, the one who sustains all these things, is my Father, and I can wake him up in the middle of the night, and he will always give me his ear. Help us to grow in this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.